Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and I just want to thank you so much for tuning in to Storytime. This is just a hobby of mine. I love true crime. I love talking about true crime. And most people I know are probably getting tired of hearing me talk about it. So I just decided to start a podcast and tell you guys. So it means a lot to me that you guys listen. Let's just jump in. I want you to know that today's episode is going to be particularly dark. It is a gripping story, um, but it does involve the death of two little boys at the end, uh, shortly after the disappearance of their mother. This is a family annihilation, basically, done at the hands of Josh Powell, and I am going to just jump right in. Josh and Susan Powell lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, with their two sons, Charles and Brayden. Charles was four when these events started, and Brayden was two. So on December 7th, Josh and Susan did not go to work, and they did not call in. And their boys didn't go to daycare, and nobody called and told the daycare why, which was really unusual for this family. It was a Monday, so I think that took a little bit of the alarm off. But it did sort of bother the daycare worker that it was Monday. She hadn't heard from Josh and Susan and they weren't answering her. She eventually decided she should go ahead and call Josh's family because she had their contact information. And Josh's mom and sister began to go grow more and more concerned when they could not get a hold of Josh or Susan themselves. They end up calling the police and requesting a welfare check of the Powell home. Josh's mom and sister meet the police at Josh and Susan's home, and when they gained entry into the home, the police found that there was a sofa, and it looked like it was wet as if it had been shampooed and had two really big box fans blowing on it. So that's kind of weird, but I mean, they do have small kids, so it's not that weird. They keep trying Josh and Susan all day, and eventually Josh answers the phone. It was almost 5.30 in the afternoon. They asked him where he was, and he told his sister that he was actually at work, which they obviously knew was a lie, right? And when they call him out on his lie, he actually says, okay, okay, I was camping with the two boys, which was really weird because like I said, it was a Sunday night then. And not only that, but they were in the middle of winter and it was extremely cold that night on December 6th. There was a blizzard. So he rationalized going out in a blizzard to camp with his two small boys because he had just gotten a new generator and he really wanted to test it out. And it did work. Now, personally, that doesn't rationalize shit to me, but whatever. That's not the only weird thing. The weirdest thing was that Susan wasn't with them. Not only that, but Josh had no idea where Susan was, why she didn't go to work, and he didn't really seem to care that she's considered potentially missing. He's just like, whatever. After he spoke with his sister, but before he got home, Susan's coworker called Josh, and she asked him if he knew Susan didn't go to work that day. And he obviously knew because he'd already talked to his sister and he still lied and said he had no idea. Then when he gets off the phone with this coworker of Susan's, he calls Susan's cell phone and leaves a voicemail just saying hi and seeing if she needed a ride home. Oh, because he makes her bike to and from work even when it's snowing. All right. So like he's a liar. Now, obviously, we want to know why he would go camping on a Sunday night. And his excuse for that was he thought it was Saturday. 
even though they went to church that Sunday. And let me tell you something. The pals are LDS members, meaning that they're Mormon. And Mormons cannot forget about going to church because they literally spend like four hours there on Sundays every week. You don't forget about church when you're a Mormon. He said Susan was at home when he left to go camping at nearly midnight. Okay. And he did let investigators check out and search the van where they did find camping gear, the generator, a shovel, which is a little bit questionable. Oh, and Susan's cell phone was in Josh's vehicle. So that's where we're at. Susan's missing. Josh had the family's only vehicle. Her bike is at home. They're in the middle of a blizzard when she supposedly left, I guess, on foot. None of her belongings were missing. Not even her wallet or identification. Those were both at the house. There wasn't an assortment of items gone as if she'd packed a bag. Just Susan was gone. And like I said before, Josh really didn't care. It was the following day, Tuesday, when when Josh actually called and told Susan's parents that she was gone. They didn't know where she was. Let's go ahead and dive into like who Josh and Susan are, how they got here, and what's going on. So Josh and Susan met relatively young. I want to say they were in their late, late teens, maybe like 19, 20, in that, in that range. And Josh actually went after Susan's older sister first. And Susan's sister was like, ew, no. She also tried to deter Susan from dating Josh or even a guy like Josh. But Susan was not receptive at all to this advice. She seemed to really like Josh and no one really understood why. Josh was described as egocentric. He mainly talked about himself and always painted himself in the best way. He lied a lot. He even claimed to have a degree from a university in Washington. Lie. He told a lot of white lies as if that wasn't annoying. He was also a bragger. So it has been suggested that Susan maybe thought she could help or save Josh. And it's really sad when people think that because it never seems to end well. Despite Susan's parents and friends and family's advice, when Josh proposed to her, she said yes, and they married in the temple. The temple. So Mormons have a bunch of temples, and basically it's like a holy sacred place. They open them up for tours after they first build them, but then they close them off, and only people who are like baptized in the Mormon church can enter it, and they do things like special Mormon rituals and stuff. And the funny thing is when you're baptized in the temple, you have these like white t-shirts and white biker shorts that you have to wear under everything. It's like a modesty thing, I guess. Anyway, so they got married in the LDS temple, but life just doesn't take off like it's supposed to, you know? She was a hairdresser working at Superclips, and that is one of those chain haircutting places that always does affordable haircuts. And so she works there and saves what money she can in hopes that she can have a private salon one day. It's hard to save money, though, because Josh can't keep a damn job. He had a habit of not keeping jobs more than like a couple to several weeks. He felt like he was better than a lot of manual work, um, above a lot of jobs. He was critical to his bosses, even to their face, by the way, and just flat out could not get along with people. He just couldn't do it. Because of this, Susan is basically the only one supporting them. And she doesn't control the purse strings. Josh does. So he is a computer nerd. And he would make like budget spreadsheets that she had to follow to a T. 
Okay, so like he would literally run the numbers of like how much everything costs and get it down to the exact amount for her to budget off of. So then in 2004, they get pregnant, they have a boy, and they decide that they're going to move to Utah to start over. So it was later thought Susan actually wanted to get away from Utah to get away from her father-in-law, Josh's dad. She did not like Josh's dad. He was a creep. Well, when they move to Utah, things do get better, but only momentarily. Josh gets a job and he like really throws himself into work. So much so that when Susan went into labor with their first son, Josh called Susan's parents to give her a ride to the hospital because he could not be bothered because he was busy working. So it's two hours into Susan in labor at the hospital that Josh decides to show up. And he sets up his entire computer and keeps working. Okay, so sometime later, like probably I want to say a couple hours or so, Susan is actually like pushing and about to have this baby. And her mom had to force Josh off of his laptop to be with Susan. Susan's literally about to push their baby out. And so he finally gets off his computer and like literally three pushes later, they have Charles. Then... After the baby was born, Josh would not let Susan's parents hold the baby. Weird. So life continues. Josh takes all the money um, Susan Susan had been saving on the side for her own private salon. She was really even just going to start with a private area in her home. Josh takes all of her money and he decides he's going to invest it in him being a realtor. He always invests everything in himself and I'll get to that in a little bit. So he spends all of her savings on realtor school and all his advertisement gear. Oh, but no surprise. He is not super, super good at it. He gets them extremely high in debt just in time for them to have baby number two, Brayden. And it is like either after Brayden was born or relatively close to this milestone that the couple reached another. They filed bankruptcy. Okay, they were roughly like $200,000 in debt And they ultimately had to get like a $5,000 loan from Susan's parents. So somewhere in the middle of this messy situation, Susan recorded a really strange video, July 28th of 2008, and it documented all the family's assets. And she literally says, in case something happens to me or my family or all of us, our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we can all live happily ever after as much as possible. So that's really weird. And then she basically wanted to document all the shit that they had. I don't know if she was afraid Josh was going to do something really bad for insurance fraud or if she was just preparing for a divorce. I don't know. It's a 12 minute video and she shows all their electronics. They had 3000 pounds of wheat, which is really weird. I mean, I know Mormons keep a lot of wheat. They also keep like a three year food supply in case of emergency. But 3,000 pounds, Jesus. So she has all their power tools in it. And they have a shit ton. Um, He's got RC cars, a lot of money in them. She has a beauty salon chair. She shows they're safe. And she makes a lot of subtle remarks like, Josh bought all these tools under my credit. And then we had to file bankruptcy. And I will say, while she is covering all their assets, all their expensive shit, is basically Josh's that he bought just to have for himself. Okay, so he had like every electronic he wanted, computers, laptop, 
if you watch the video, you will totally see why they had to file bankruptcy. But um, it is really weird that she documented it all. She didn't only document their electronics and tools for insurance purposes. She documented like the rocking chair, her jewelry, which in the video, it's not very good resolution to see the actual jewelry but she says Josh broke most of her jewelry and her DVDs a year prior in a fit of rage so this is like casually mentioned as she's making documentation of all their assets so it's very very weird very eerie to look back on and watch now and again this was in July of 2008 a year later in 2009 the housing market completely crashed I actually remember that and Josh was a realtor remember so once again Josh doesn't have a job and things slowly worsened in the Powell family financial portfolio not that it had really gotten much better um, I mean Josh just had a job that he wasn't super good at but it wasn't like he didn't get them into bankruptcy and they hadn't just filed so Josh becomes increasingly controlling over Susan, like he gave her impossibly low food rations to work with, and like he did this by giving her a very, very low, very specific food budget, and he would scan her re receipt through the spreadsheet when she got back to make sure she had no extra purchases. He was pretty much a stay-at-home dad because he couldn't keep a job, so he kept the family's only vehicle. Susan would bike to and from work, like... This is just an annoying guy from the little bit that I've heard about him. I cannot imagine life with him on an everyday basis. They basically become not physical at all. He barely even will touch her. There's very little to no sex. I mean, it's pretty bad. So let's address the elephant in the room. As I mentioned before, Susan and Josh were LDS, meaning that they were Mormons. They take the vow of marriage very seriously. And so Susan, I think, was originally going to do, as Dr. Phil says, earn your way out of the marriage. But Josh caught the slightest whiff of divorce and made it very clear to Susan he was not going to tolerate that. Susan slowly began to become afraid of Josh. She left a last will and testimony in a drawer in her desk, only to be opened if she was gone, and she opened a safety deposit box without Josh's knowledge or him on it, and inside she put a letter. And in the letter, she wrote that Josh threatened to destroy her if she leaves. So I believe he was threatening to, like, keep her paychecks, not let her see the boys, um, probably do some lying and character defamation, things like that. And she said that they'd been having relationship problems since 2004. And if something happened to her, it needed to be looked into, even if it looked accidental, because it probably would not be. Like, that's a really afraid woman. You have to be truly terrified to go to such great lengths. Well, apparently Susan thought Josh might be suffering from like bipolar or some sort of mood disorder. And this might account for his slowly increasingly strange behavior and almost scary behavior on a side note Josh's dad was extremely like him when he was younger and married he too became increasingly controlling and even scary in fact Terry Josh's mom had to divorce his father Stephen after like oh gosh a long time of being married because she was so afraid of him and Terry and Steven they had two older boys and two younger kids a boy and a girl and the younger kids stayed with the mom and the two older boys stayed with Steven 
the older boys were mean and they picked up on a lot of their dad's behaviors so much so that Terry and the younger children were afraid of the older boys. So there's a lot of parallels between Josh and his dad. So here we are. Investigators are tracking with all of this information, plus the fact that Josh had a 1.5 million life insurance policy on Susan. Like, oh my gosh. But Josh isn't thinking Susan was like kidnapped or killed. He insists Susan left, even though no one had heard from Susan, not her parents, not her friends, nobody, no coworkers, anything. The devout LDS hardworking mother of two who does everything she does for her children left. Okay. In fact, Josh and his dad, they made this weird claim that Susan disappeared with this other guy who just so happened to have disappeared. Like there was a man who was unconnected to Susan who also disappeared relatively close to the same time she did. And they were saying that she left with him, which is ridiculous. When Josh gave the police him and Susan's phones, neither had SIM cards. So you couldn't locate their history or other information. And like, as if that wasn't weird enough, Charlie, who was only four at the time, was saying things that like mommy went camping with them, but he doesn't know where she went. It's heating up, y'all. It's heating up. Josh moved into his dad's home with the two boys after Susan's disappearance and investigators got a hold of a journal Susan kept. She was an avid, avid journal writer her whole life. And it confirmed that they were in fact having marital problems. So nothing happened for a really long time. Josh avoided the media for like a year. And when he did speak, he maintained that Susan ran away and that him and the boys went camping in a blizzard. In fact, there is a recording of this uh, encounter that Josh has this interview he does with the media about a year following Susan's disappearance and he's so stupid that I'm literally gonna play it at the end of this episode if you're interested you can listen for that at the very end I will speed it along because he just talks really slow and takes a lot of pauses but like I said he just maintains that yeah there was a blizzard he went camping and Susan was at home and he doesn't know what happens to her very interesting Susan's family did exactly what you're supposed to do when someone you love is missing. You stay on a mission to keep people remembering that person, keep their picture circulating, information surrounding their disappearance, date, time, last known area, things like that. And they did that. And so in 2011, a woman called a tip line and says that she remembered a man and two boys who she were sure were Susan's two boys from all over the media and that she said she saw them getting breakfast at a bed and breakfast. They don't think they stayed at the bed and breakfast. They think they were just there for breakfast. And she heard one of the boys say, do you know what happened to mommy? As the boys got older and they became more vocal, one said mommy did come camping with them in the trunk. And they said mommy and daddy got out and mommy got lost, maybe went into a mine looking for treasure. Um, It's very sad, very chilling things like that, that the boys would slowly say as they got older. In the end of 2011, the police seized all the electronics in Josh and his father Stephen's home. Because remember after Susan's disappearance, Josh eventually moved in with his dad and the two boys came with him. And they hoped they could find something in regards to the disappearance of Susan, but they did not. They did, however, find a bunch of child pornography and voyeurism photos that Josh's dad, Stephen, took. 
of unsuspecting neighbors and other child porn he accumulated online, which means he was basically a peeping Tom and a pedophile. The boys were immediately removed from the home and placed with Susan's parents, and Josh was allotted supervised visitation for a few hours. Um, I don't know the frequency, if it was weekly or biweekly. Now, Josh did have to undergo a psychosexual evaluation, and the results found Josh to have narcissistic traits, and he would not admit any shortcomings he had. He is stated adequate in parenting and work and has no criminal record. This is according to a KUTV news article. The evaluator advised supervised visitations as well. By the way, something important I should have mentioned earlier. So Josh and Susan, I had said relocated to Utah. They relocated to Utah from Washington. Josh had moved back to Washington after Susan's disappearance. So they're all back in Washington now. Okay. Um, this is this did not take place in Salt Lake City. What's the following events? Now, unfortunately, none of the normal safety protocols were followed that day by the Washington Department of Children's Services. Most people assumed that they weren't following regular protocols because one, Josh was not guilty or involved in the charges against his father, Stephen. Um, he did not himself possess child pornography and likely did not know. And the two, the DHS workers were not dealing with a split up couple or Josh battling uh, an angry ex-wife to where they need to stay as separate as possible and take as many precautions for safety. Um, Susan wasn't in the picture. What they were dealing with, they thought was just a much anticipated visit with dad. When the caseworker, she's not actually a caseworker. She's just a child supervisor for DHS visits. When they arrived at Josh's, he opened the door just enough for the two boys to squeeze in. And then he hurried and shut the door and locked it, leaving the supervisor for this visit outside. She was a woman in her mid-60s. She was not even legally certified caseworker. For one, in Washington, you're supposed to be a legally certified caseworker to oversee something like this. For two, an elderly woman is not who should be escorting the kids to the private residence of a grown man. It should be at a secure third-party location. Just to prepare you, what I'm going to tell you is very difficult and dark, and this is why child protection laws are so serious. The supervisor began banging and banging on the door, and she hears Josh yell that he has a surprise for them. The younger boy then yelped in pain and the caseworker thought, okay, maybe he fell running to get the surprise or something. She wasn't thinking the worst, but then she smelled gasoline and she goes to her vehicle and she gets her phone and she's calling 911 and I'm going to play part of the call. It is lengthy and I will be editing and shortening it. It is sad because I do not think the dispatcher really realized the gravity of the situation and he did not thus deploy the proper emergency services in time. Here it is. I want a supervised visitation for a court-ordered visit and something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119 and I, I think it's 89th. Um, I, I don't know what the address is. It's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can, if I can find it. Nothing like this has ever happened before at these visitations, so I'm really um, shocked. And I could hear one of the kids crying, but he still wouldn't let me in. Okay, it is uh, one. 
first available deputy contact you what the fuck is that shortly after the phone call ended the house went up in flames josh powell had lit his home on fire with himself and his two boys inside of course nobody was coming to aid the boys until in a fire erupted and several people called 911 due to a house fire not that that first 911 dispatcher ever did a damn thing to help them 
this is such a tough situation. So like I said, Josh lit the entire home on fire with him and the two boys inside. When they did make it inside after they put out the fire, the two little boys and Josh did not have any visible burns, but they were all in dead and they died of carbon monoxide poisoning. It was evident that Josh had actually tried to kill them with a hatchet, which he did not successfully kill either boy with the hatchet, but he did injure them greatly in their neck and chest. And then he set the house on fire and it was carbon monoxide poisoning that ultimately killed them. Susan Powell's remains were never discovered. There are a lot of mines in the area, hundreds. It's believed by many that he disposed of her body in a mine. A lot of people think Josh's brother helped him cover up the murder of Susan. On February 11th, 2013, his brother committed suicide by jumping off a building. Braden and Charles are buried together. And this is crazy, but Josh's parents tried to bury a plot right next to the boys. Like, why would you do that? And then when Susan's family objected, they tried to sneakily buy Josh a plot on the top of the hill that overlooked the boys' grave. And Susan's parents were like, dude, Josh is not getting buried in the same motherfucking place. By the way, Josh's father was sentenced to five years for the child porn and voyeurism. He got credit for the 14 or 16 months or whatever that he'd already served, and he did his time and was released. Anyway, this story really breaks my heart, and um, even if you're afraid of your spouse, seek help. Do not try to save people if it means you're risking your safety. I am going to leave for you guys with the recording of Josh speaking to the media one year after Susan's disappearance. And I will catch you next time. Bye. Well, I've been trying to figure out what I can do so I don't sit idle. Um, I'm dealing with this repeatedly. Sure. Um, I was just going to go in and get my kids because, you know, they're... How, how, are they, how are they doing? Um... They've been doing good, uh, as far as I can tell. How about you? I mean, I know this is difficult on you. How are you doing? I mean, this is such, it's got to be a lot of uh, emotions going on for you. Um, you know, people have been really helpful and supportive, so it's been, uh, it's been really hard, but, you know, you just keep going. What, what can you tell us about that night? I mean, um, from what we understand, you went camping and then came home. Well, tell us what, what happened that night. Yeah, I just, I, a lot of times I just go camping with my boys, you know, not, not anything big. I just go overnight and, you know, we do s'mores and stuff like that. And so I just went, boys, was planning to do some s'mores in the morning and, and we did. And then when we got home, um, well, on the way home, found out that people were worried about us and we were missing. And, and um, the report is, is that neither you nor your wife called in sick and they said that that's not usual what what are your thoughts on that um no it's it's not usual i um now from what we understand there's nothing uh there's looks like no foul play in the home it appears that your wife left her um, cell phone and purse i mean do you have any i mean does she does she go off to sort of maybe clear her head i mean do you have any idea where she could be no she I mean, she'll leave during the day, and but she's never left overnight. Does she have any enemies that you can think of? That would I don't. I can't think of anyone. Now, a lot of talk on the internet. I mean, a lot of obviously in cases like this, and you know this, that the, the, they instantly talk. About
talked about the husband. They think that he's the suspect, that he did something. Is there anything you want to say to address that? Um, I, I didn't do anything. I mean, I, I don't know where she's at. I, I don't even know where to start looking. And the boys, I mean, do, how do you, what do you tell them about them? I haven't told them anything. I mean, they've overheard stuff, but I haven't, I mean, by the time it all started, I, I was already, uh, you know, it was already late and went to bed. Well, you've been hectic ever since. Now, your wife laid down that night, right? She wasn't feeling well, is that? And then you just, and that's when you, you, you went camping, right? Where, where'd you guys go camping? Well, she, she wasn't not feeling well. Oh, okay. She was feeling well. Oh, okay. Um, but she just went to bed. About five-ish, is that what we heard? We heard five. I don't know if that's true. You, you would know better than we would. Well, no, she went to bed that night. Um, and what time did you go camping, would you say? Um, I, you know, I, I got out to a pretty late start. Nine-ish? No, it was, it was later. Okay. Um, basically, I'm just trying to, trying to figure out what I can do and both try to find her and try to take care of life in general. Uh, where, do you, where do you guys camp? Um, we went down south to, the, to some trails down there. Do you mean like Moab area? Or? No, no. We, um, we actually just went down to the, um, the Pony Express. Pony Express Trail? Yeah. Okay. Are there campgrounds down there? Uh, yeah, I'm not I guess familiar with the area, so yeah. Okay. But I guess I better go. Okay. Well, good luck to you. We appreciate your time. Thank right. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Pitiful, bad liar, dumb, dumb man. All right, guys. I'll catch you next time. Bye.